Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Today's episode is your November challenge. This year, I have been setting a different challenge every month as I really don't like New Year's resolutions, and it struck me that there was an opportunity for self-development and self-improvement that we were missing by making these nebulous resolutions at pretty much the worst point in the year to make any kind of changes. It's right after Christmas, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's in the middle of winter. Not a great time to be trying to make a resolution that's going to last all year. So instead, we have a different challenge every month. So far, we have looked at breaking and making habits, prioritizing sleep, prioritizing food, learning a new skill, stamina and strength, as well as flexibility and other things related to swordsmanship training. Last month, we were looking at footwork. And if you want to have a look back at those monthly challenges, you can go to guywindsor.net forward slash blog and look at the category called challenge of the month. So your challenge this month is to improve your striking. Now before I get into the sort of martial arts specific aspect of that, really what we're looking at more than anything else is your precision and accuracy. So you can apply this to any domain. So for example as a Someone who uses a keyboard, you might prioritize the accuracy with which you type. Someone who drives a car might prioritize the smoothness and accuracy of their gear changes or the precision with which they take a corner. There is really no domain in life that this cannot be applied to. Of course, being sword people, we will tend to apply it to swords first, but it's no bad thing to let that leak out into the other areas of your life. I'm going to be taking the bulk of this episode from my book, The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, because I happen to have written up my thoughts most clearly there. And of course, you are very welcome to go and buy the book. You can find it at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. So without further ado, Whether you are striking with a fist, a foot, a stick or a sword, there are fundamental components in common. They are mechanics, so are you moving correctly, accuracy, can you hit the right target, many combat sports have restricted target areas and the difference between putting your sword on someone's breastplate or in the gap between breastplate and pauldron is critical. This includes hitting with the correct part of the weapon. A cut with the edge works much better than a cut with the flat. Punch incorrectly and you can break your own bones. Power. Can you hit hard enough to get the desired effect? That may be to trigger an electric circuit in modern fencing, to knock them out in boxing, or even to slice off a body part in a medieval duel. Control. Can you handle the power you are generating? Overcommitment can lead to catastrophic outcomes. You could injure your training partners or leave yourself open to a counter if your weapons are not under your control. Timing. Can you execute your controlled, accurate, powerful strike at the right time? In general, we aim to strike into an open or opening line. And measure. 
Can you execute your perfectly timed, controlled, accurate and powerful strike from the right place, not too close, not too far away? We can develop all these skills alone, though both timing and measure are easier to practice with a partner or a coach. With weapons training, we usually begin with handling drills designed to give us fluent control over the weapon. Unarmed equivalents include shadow boxing and working combinations of strikes to develop an unconscious control over whichever parts of your body you hit with. Let's have a look at mechanics or grounding and initiation. The mechanics of movement are covered by the sciences of kinematics, the study of the geometry of motion, and kinetics, the study of the forces involved. For our purposes, we can consider them as analogous to grounding, which is the structures in play, and initiation, how those structures are moving. Grounding. Grounding is the process of taking incoming force and rooting it through your skeleton into the ground without interference from you. In a perfect world, in whatever position you're in, there's a ground path where force coming back from your weapon or in from your opponent is rooted through a passive structure of bones directly into the ground. Oh my, there is a whole other book in this one idea. I'll get on with that shortly. There are about 200 bones in your body and about 600 muscles. The question to ask yourself is, is every bone in the right place and does every muscle have the right degree of tension? Initiation. As I mentioned in the footwork chapter, and you can hear that in last, uh, last month's October challenge episode, initiation describes the order in which the various parts of your body move. For most weapons work, the feeling should be that the weapon moves, dragging your body behind it into the correct posture. Most punches should begin in the fist, but there are trade-offs. A punch that goes fist, shoulder, hip, leg will be very fast, but hit less hard than one that goes leg, hip, shoulder, fist. I find it helpful to consider three main centers of initiation. A strike begins in the hand, the hip, or waist as Tai Chi people will say, or the leg. We can also consider centers of rotation. A motion that is centered in the shoulder is different from one centered in the elbow. With sword motions, the sword can rotate around the point, the middle of the blade, the center of balance, the forefinger, the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, the hips, or the feet. Usually, there are other options. A motion that begins with a rotation in the middle of the sword might include rotation in the forefinger, elbow, shoulder, hip, and foot, usually in that order. Different arts prioritize different centers for perfectly good reasons, and different strikes will have different optimal initiation patterns. The question to ask yourself is, Am I starting the movement in the right place? Let's have a look at tools for striking practice. The tools you need for striking practice are mostly variations on the idea of the target. They include targets you can hit hard, such as a heavy punching bag for unarmed work, a tire for armed work, targets you can actually destroy, such as tatami mats for cutting with sharp swords, targets that give you feedback on your accuracy, such as point control wall targets, and targets that move, which help you with timing and measure. I should also mention here dummies for wrestlers, which serve the same function of giving useful feedback about technical accuracy. As swordsmanship is my primary art, I'll stick to what I know and discuss the tools we use. I'm sure you can come up with useful variations for whatever art you practice. One of the core skills of using a sword is getting the point to go where you want it to. The principal tools we use for this are the wall target, the pell, the tire, and the buckler game. 
the wall target. The wall target is a padded striking surface for thrusting at. We know that these have been in use since at least the late 16th century, when a primarily thrust-oriented style of fencing became common. I use it with every weapon. I made my own target out of a piece of plywood covered with camping mat foam and a layer of leather. Additional leather patches to reinforce the target points are a good idea. Wall targets should be large enough that you are never likely to miss the target altogether. Holes in the wall are hard to explain. The main school target has three main striking points, approximately at face, heart and groin height for an opponent standing in guard, with two additional points placed like eyes. There is enough space around the target for all footwork actions for both left and right handers. For any thrust-oriented weapon, this is perhaps the most important solo practice you can do. In addition to accuracy, it teaches you distance, power and control. Make sure before you start that your blade is designed to take the repeated bending, and if you are using a triangular section blade, make sure that the point of the triangle is in the inside of the curve. Symmetrically cross-section blades, such as the common lozenge shape, can bend in both directions. Regular practice on the wall makes up about 80% of my own rapier, small sword and foil training. It is very important that the blade bends when the point touches the wall, but there is no give anywhere else. Ensure that the blade stays in line with your forearm and your wrist locks to support the pressure. The purpose of the lunge is to drive the sword through the target. With a practice blade and a wall target, the energy is absorbed by the blade. With a sharp blade and a penetrable target, that energy is used to puncture the target. The sword-swordsman combination should be perfectly aligned so that no energy leaks. The lunge is the perfect long attack with all your weight and energy focused in one direction, on one point. The Pell The Pell is a post, often with a crossbeam, fixed upright for you to cut and thrust at. Try the following exercises. Pick one blow and see how hard and fast you can strike at the Pell without touching. Repeat with multiple strikes, use your imagination. Strike fast but stroke the Pell gently on a marked spot about as hard as you would like to be hit in free play. See how hard and fast that really is. Repeat with multiple strikes in different lines. Choose a specific strike and approach the moving smoothly and without stopping with blows from guard to guard. See if you can arrive in measure with your sword in the right place to launch the prearranged strike. This is harder than it sounds. The 99 strikes exercise. Make 100 cuts at the pal without touching it. Every time you touch it, the counter resets to zero. So if you touch on strike 99, you go back to the beginning. The tyre. An ordinary car tyre held by a helpful partner is an ideal striking target as it absorbs some, but not all, of the impact. You can hit it with absolutely full force without endangering the person holding it, unless you miss. And while it gives some shock back into the sword and your hands, much of the force is taken by the elastic give of the tyre. Every target hits back. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. If your technique is correct, you can direct the returning energy down into the ground. If not, the tyre will bounce your sword up and off. I recommend adding a strip of duct tape as a more precise aiming point. When you hit the tyre, the energy going into it should be absorbed by the tyre and your partner. You should feel almost nothing. Start gently, standing still, and work your way up, adding speed and power slowly. Then try adding footwork, such as striking with a pass. Your body knows that to hit hard, it should step first and strike with the rotation of the hips. 
This will give you maximum power, but get you killed in a sword fight. It is critically important to remember that the tire is not waiting with a sword to kill you, and therefore will let you get away with wildly incorrect timing. You can step into measure and then strike. You need to watch for this. I suggest setting up the video camera and checking your form regularly. The Buckler Game Strictly speaking, this exercise doesn't belong in a book about solo training because it requires a partner. But it only requires a willing friend, not a fellow martial artist, and it's too useful to leave out. For this exercise, we use a simple wooden buckler as a thrusting target. Your partner holds it in one hand and wears a mask just in case, and offers it up for you to thrust at. Their job is then to make you move about, offering the target at various heights and distances, and for decreasing lengths of time, making it difficult for you to get the thrust in. This should be calibrated so that you can hit it about three or four times out of five attempts. Less than that, they should slow down. More than that, they should make things harder. This is just like using focus mitts with a boxing coach. Cutting targets. If your art includes cutting weapons, then you need to know how to actually cut. There are many options for cutting targets, and when designing the target, we need to take the following things into account. Verisimilitude. How well does it simulate the real target? Cost. How much money and time does it take to prepare? Consistency. How similar can we make each target piece to ensure minimum variations that might affect the resistance to cutting? Damage. Will the target materials damage the sword? And if so, is that acceptable? Blood and water rust steel, bones can chip blades, straw scratches, etc. The following targets seem popular in current historical martial arts circles. Japanese-style mats, tatami omote, made from soft rush material. Beach mats, used the same way as tatami, they're cheaper but do more damage to the sword and are less consistent. Animal parts, cardboard tubes, carpet rolls, dangling rope, plastic bottles filled with water, and rolls of newspaper. Paper products such as newsprint or cardboard can carry the abrasive grit used in the pulping process, which will scratch and may dull your sword. Given the range available, it makes sense to try out the ones suitable for your training environment. In each case, the targets vary according to their weight, density, hardness, how much resistance the materials give to the blade. Mats, rope and paper are usually soaked to lubricate the cut and soften the fibres. This also more closely simulates the conditions in the human body and how stable the target is on impact. A dangling rope is much harder to cut than one held taut because it can move away from the cut. Likewise, the same rope is easier to cut with a downwards blow than a rising one. An empty plastic bottle standing on a level surface is harder to cut than the same bottle filled with water because the weight of the water holds the bottle in place at the moment of impact. It is necessary that the target be cuttable by the sword in question. No sword should be used to cut down a tree. That's why loggers use axes. Where armour is placed over the target, such as putting a gambeson sleeve over a leg of lamb, it is important to be clear whether it is the armour, the sword or the cut being tested. I have found that the tatami omote, through though laborious to prepare and relatively expensive to obtain, are the most consistent and hence the most useful cutting substrate. The sharpness of the sword is also an issue. People who specialise in test cutting tend to prefer a very sharp edge because it cuts better. However, practising technical drills with sharp swords teaches you first and foremost that during a sword fight a very sharp edge gets damaged worse and faster than a slightly dull one, 
and that any sword that can be considered sharp will incur damage to the edge on contact with another sword. Medieval combat styles often include half-sword technique, whereby the sword is grasped by the handle and blade. A super sharp edge makes this risky, but an ordinarily sharp sword will not cut the hand unless the blade is drawn across it. For cutting practice, it is perfectly acceptable to use an over-sharp sword, provided that we take into account the excessive sharpness when estimating the blow's effectiveness in combat. It is not actually necessary to simulate a body part at all for the purposes of testing the effect of different styles of cut, or testing changes to your cutting technique. Any consistent target that is appropriate for cutting will do to start with. Careful examination of the target and the blow should tell you whether your cut is hitting, but not cutting, or whether it's slicing through easily, how accurate the blow was, what part of the edge cuts best, how your footwork, if any, affects the blow, and how much effort the effect is costing you. Videotaping the cutting session is extremely useful for those purposes, as is the presence of a competent instructor. It is also worth setting up thrusting targets that you can stick with sharp blades. An old pillowcase stuffed with scraps of cloth can work, and I do thrust at tatami mats too. It's generally less critical to practice thrusting with sharps, because if your thrust works on the wall target with a blunt sword, it will work with sharps. The same is not true of cuts, due to the issues of edge alignment and slicing mechanics. Training forms. No discussion of solo training would be complete without mentioning forms. Some arts, such as Tai Chi, are very much based on a form. Others, such as the Bolognese swordsmanship of the 16th century, use forms as training tools but don't prioritise them in the same way. Most arts have forms of one kind or another. Forms come in all shapes and sizes and have a variety of different purposes. It helps to know how forms are created in order to use them efficiently. Any form has at least the following elements. Techniques, which are the heart of the art itself. Attribute training exercises, so technical studies intended to generate specific skills or strengths, such as jumps for leg strength, handling drills for weapons, and all sorts of things that you wouldn't use in a fight, but which make you a better martial artist. Connecting steps, steps included to make the pattern of the form coherent and repeatable, or to make it fit into the available training space. The purpose of the form determines its content. The question, what is it for, has many possible answers, which include self-improvement, memory guide, the form should make it easier for students to recall aspects of the art in question, flow and mechanics, practicing the form should ingrain the correct movement style and habits, enabling fluent and powerful actions, an expandable zip file, the form can be built in a way that allows the various actions to be expanded upon, to trigger memory cascades, and to create loci for memorizing other material. Once you have the form in memory, you can use it for all sorts of other things. One of my favorites is practicing at multiple speeds. These are treacle speed, go so slowly that every step is an exercise in hovering. This is really, really hard. Walking speed, this is the normal speed at which you will stroll through the form, not rushing, but not too slow, a nice, comfortable pace. Fast. This is where it all goes to hell. Go as fast as you can. This should hurt. Hurt not least your pride and your sense of aesthetics when actions that were quite accurate suddenly get really sloppy. And continuously. Put on some music. I usually use the Eye of the Tiger for this. Start your form when the music starts and do not stop for any reason except to prevent injury until the music stops. You could just repeat the form over and over, but I like to play with it.
The primary risk of form training can be summarised as it becomes ballet. Compliant opponents allow your technique to become sloppy. Form replaces function. There is also the risk of over-specialisation, in that you can confuse the content of the form with the entire content of the art. Drilling the applications to the steps of the form properly should prevent balletization, and expanding every step should prevent over-specialisation. But this is not an easy process, which is one of the reasons for writing this book. In brief, the form can be used for solo practice and with partners to train applications. Each step can be expanded to include other elements. It is a memory palace in which to store the things you have learned, and it can be used as a diagnostic. I've put together lots of striking practice resources on this page, guywindsor.net forward slash striking. I should also mention that in our morning train-alongs, which are at 8.30 on Monday, Wednesday and Friday mornings, that's UK time, uh, we are this month focusing on precision, primarily point control. On plate 7 of Capoferro's Grand Simulacro, he explicitly tells us to thrust to the left eye. The expectation is that we have a choice which eye to stick our sword through. Given that the train-alongs happen in my study, with limited space and very limited strikeable targets, it makes sense to focus on point control rather than power generation such as in the longsword blow. But that's just how I am interpreting this challenge. Let me know if you come up with a different approach. Thanks for listening. I hope you're all fired up for this month's challenge. So getting your strikes better than they were before, or just working on accuracy and power generation and precision generally. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And of course, that includes links to the various striking drills and stuff that I mentioned. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content, to ask me questions, and to submit questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the wonderful harp music that I have decorated this episode and several others of the podcast with. He first created it for my George Silver's Paradoxes of Defense audiobook publication, and I've sort of cannibalized it for this purpose, and uh, I hope he doesn't mind. Well, he should be coming on the show at some point in the future, so I'm pretty sure he doesn't mind. Thanks again, Andrew. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Jason Kingsley about his Modern History TV channel, starting the Rebellion Games Company, owning the intellectual property to 2000 AD. That's Judge Dredd, Rogue Trooper, Strontium Dogs, etc, etc. We go into some very geeky territory, including a, a chat about Hawk the Slayer, which will make, I know, some of my listeners very happy. And, of course, the trials and tribulations of looking after horses. So, you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. And of course, as always, nothing beats a personal recommendation. So if you have a friend who you think should be listening, by all means, drop them an email or ping them on some social media thingy and let them know about the show. That would be super helpful. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. <laughs>